0: So we've come to the middle of our series on Revelation 2 and 3, and we've come to the longest letter of the seven. Ironically, it's written to the church in the least important city. Unlike Ephesus with its economic power or Smyrna with its architectural and natural beauty, Thyatira, in comparison, had very little going for it. Now the fact is that we actually don't know much about Thyatira. In comparison to the other six cities mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, we know by far the least about Thyatira. The church is the same. We know very little about the church in comparison to the other churches. But what we do know about the church and what we do know about the city I think is really important. And what we do read about the church here in Revelation 2 and 3 I think is both enough to encourage and warn us. And so I pray that today as we open up that that's exactly what would happen, that we would be encouraged and yet at the same time we would be challenged and warned. So verse 18 starts like this, pretty predictable fashion for Revelation 2-3. Jesus identifies himself, and the angel of the church in Thyatira right? the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, Jesus' description of himself in verse 18 is pretty interesting, because this is the only place in the book of Revelation where Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. It's the only time that title is used for Jesus. From what we can tell, one of the main cults in Thyatira was the cult of Apollo, who is thought to be the son of Zeus. And so I think clearly what Jesus is doing here is he is reminding people that he is the son of God. Apollo may claim to be the son of God, little g, but Jesus is saying, I am the son of God. He goes on to say that he has eyes like flaming fire and feet like burnished bronze. I think he's trying to communicate to the church that he sees everything and that he is strong. He is not to be messed with. It's probably worth pointing out here that the picture that we are given of Jesus in Revelation 2 is much different than the picture that our culture, or much different than the way that our culture often portrays Jesus. Jesus is oftentimes presented like an ancient version or a precursor to the modern day hippie. And although we wouldn't say it like this, we kind of think that Jesus walked around flashing the peace sign wherever he went, telling people just to get along. But that's not the picture here in Revelation 2, is it? His eyes are like flaming fire. And I think the fact that this picture differs from much of of what our culture says about Jesus is a reminder to us that we must see Jesus for who he really is. Not for who we think he is or who we think he should be, but for who he actually is. As he reminds the church at Thyatira here, he is the son of God. He has eyes like flaming fire, Feet like burnished bronze. He can see everything and he is strong. And the fact that he can see everything is both a good and terrible thing for the church at Thyatira. It's good because there are some great things happening at this church. To the credit of the church at Thyatira, there are some things going really well. Look at verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So let's be clear here, there are some really good things happening in the church at Thyatira. Given what we're about to read in verses 20 to 23, likely we'll conclude that Thyatira was a pretty messed up church, but we have to acknowledge that first and foremost, there are some things going on here that are healthy. Jesus says four things about the church here. He likes their love, their faith, their patient endurance, and their service. These are four commendable things. The church seemingly was doing a good job of loving people and loving God. I would guess that if you were to go and visit the church at Thyatira, you probably would have liked the people. They were loving each other. They were serving each other. This would have been the type of place that you would have liked to visit. It seems like there's a lot going on here that is good. And even more impressively, their works are increasing. Verse 19 again, the very end of it. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So they loved God... They loved people, and they were growing in these areas. What more could you ask for? They're full of love. They're full of faith. They're patiently enduring. They're serving one another. And to top it all off, they're growing in these areas. Their latter works are exceeding the first. I think it's worth asking, is this true of us? Are our latter works exceeding the first? Are we growing in the areas of serving one another, loving one another, faith, patiently enduring? If you've been a Christian for any period of time, are you different than you were five years ago? Are you different than you were ten years ago? Are your latter works exceeding the first? Listen, there is something really good going on at the church at Thyatira, and we have to acknowledge that, that they are growing in certain areas. And in fact, if the passage ended right here, I would guess that we would be tempted to conclude that this is a model church. This is the type of church that we should want to be like, right? They have all these great things going for them. But in verse 20, we're reminded that they have a potentially fatal flaw. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says this, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, to understand what's going on here, we probably need to understand a little bit more about the history of Thyatira. As I mentioned earlier, we know comparatively little about this city, but what we do know is really important to understanding this passage. And what we do know about Thyatira is that more than anything, it was known for its trade guilds. Now, I know that guilds is not a word that we use often, but you might think of it, and this is an oversimplification, but you might think of it as a modern day union, something of that sort. It was an association of craftsmen. And from everything we know historically about Thyatira, this is the thing that the city was best known for. These associations of craftsmen. We've since found inscriptions that told us that there are all kinds of guilds in Thyatira. There were wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, tanners, potters, bakers, dyers of cloth, bronze workers. You name it, in Thyatira, there was a trade association for that particular craft. Now, these guilds were important, not just for business reasons, but they were also a huge part of the cultural and social and religious fabric of the city belonging to a guild was not required by the law. But if you were going to make a living, it was almost a necessity. This is the way that you would make contacts. This is the way that you would be considered part of the community. And so if you wanted to make any sort of money, you almost certainly had to belong to a guild. Even if you were a Christian, it was expected that if you wanted to make a living, you would belong to a guild. If not, it would be very hard to make money, and you would be a social outcast. Now, maybe you wonder, well, what's the big deal? Why would it matter that they would join a guild? It doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with that. Well, here's the issue. These guilds were religious in nature. And to be a part of the guild, it was assumed, if not required, that you would also attend the guild feast. And at these feasts, each of the guilds would have a patron god. And so they would worship this god. They would engage in idolatry. And oftentimes this idolatry would turn into all forms of immorality, including sexual morality. And so to be a part of the guild, it was expected that you would participate in these feasts. So if you were a Christian, you had two choices. Choice number one is that you could decide, I'm not going to be a part of the guild, I'm not going to participate in these feasts. The obvious advantage of that choice is that you're obeying Christ, and that you're doing what is clear on your conscience. The disadvantage is, it almost certainly set you up for a life of poverty and social ostracism. The other choice you had is that you could participate in the feast and you could participate in the guilds. Now, obviously, this would be a better financial solution. The disadvantage is that in the process, you have to engage in idolatry and potentially sexual morality. At the very least, you'd be committing spiritual adultery. And so the question is, if you were a Christian in Thyatira, what would you do? Now, listen, I think this is a really easy question for us to answer, right? Given that we have a nice building that we meet here, we live in a nice part of the country. We drove our nice cars here. This is a much easier question to ask, answer in theory than it is in reality. If it meant that you would almost certainly be a social outcast in every way and that you would have no money, what would your choice be? For the people at Thyatira, this was not a theoretical decision. This was a real-life decision that they had to make. And I would imagine that it was a much harder decision to make in reality than it is in theory. Of course, sitting here, we can say, well, yeah, they should choose Jesus. That's easy. But would we if we were in that situation? For the believers at Tyre, they had to answer the question, do we want to do what's right and live a life of poverty and social ostracism? Or do we want to just bend a little bit and maybe even justify what we're doing and just go along with the crowd so we can make a living? You could see how this might be a tough decision. And into the reality of that tough decision, stepped a woman named Jezebel, or at least that's what Jesus describes her as here. Now, it's likely her name was not actually Jezebel. This is just a code name that Jesus was using to describe a certain type of teaching. We don't know the identity of this person. There's all kinds of theories out there as to who she is exactly. But Jesus refers to her as Jezebel, which is certainly a reference to the Old Testament character Jezebel. Maybe you remember the name. In the Old Testament, Jezebel was the Phoenician wife of King Ahab. And she led the northern kingdom of Israel astray into worshiping false gods. This is what Jezebel was known from the Old Testament, for leading people to worship a false god. And undoubtedly, this is the way that Jesus is referring to this woman. He's saying that this woman, who's proclaiming herself to be a prophetess, is leading the church astray, just like Jezebel did in the Old Testament. And as we hinted at earlier, almost certainly what's happening is that she's leading them astray in these areas of trade guilds or trade guild festivals. It seems likely, from what we know, that Jezebel, claiming authority from God, was teaching the church that participating in these trade guild festivals was permissible. To use the language of verse 20, she was seducing the church to believe that these idolatrous and immoral festivals were okay. Now the question is, how in the world was she able to convince the church that this was okay? Okay. I think that's always a question we should ask ourselves. How in the world did she convince them? Yeah, it's fine for you to participate in idolatry. It's fine for you to participate in sexual morality. Did Jezebel just say, hey, listen, I know that the teaching you've heard in the past, I know what the scriptures say, say that you shouldn't be idolatrous or immoral, but you should just go for it. Is that what she did? Well, maybe, but I doubt it. Because that's not usually how false teaching works. False teaching is usually more clever than that. There's a reason why in Matthew 7, Jesus warns of false prophets, and he says that they will come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they will be ravenous wolves. There's a reason why in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul warns of false teachers masquerading as apostles of Christ, and why he describes Satan as masquerading as an angel of light. Because most of the time, false teachers, at least those that are threatening the church from within, will give the appearance of being godly. Listen, if false teachers were to come out and say, hey, listen, we know the Bible doesn't say this, but you should do it anyway, it'd be pretty easy for us to identify false teaching and false teachers. But that's not the way it usually works. When I was in college and my friend Joshua and I encountered a group of people teaching that baptism was necessary for salvation, they didn't make the argument this way. They didn't say, hey, listen, we know that the Bible teaches that you're saved by grace alone And we know that it's not biblical, but you need to be baptized. Trust us. That's not what they did. Instead, they went to scripture and they argued from scripture why they said baptism was necessary for salvation. And at first, that was why it was so difficult for me to sort out. I was a new believer. I didn't have great knowledge of the scriptures. I didn't have great knowledge of theology. And so they were making these biblical or seemingly biblical arguments. And I was wondering, what am I missing here? As time went on and I studied the Bible more, I realized, you know, what they were teaching was contrary to Scripture, undoubtedly. In fact, in retrospect, I think it's clear we're saved by Christ. We're saved by his works alone, not by our works. The Bible is clear. There is nothing that you can do to earn your way into the kingdom of heaven. It's only what Christ has done. It's not our actions. For example, baptism. It's what Jesus did. That's what saves us. It's what Christ has done. It's the fact that he lived a perfect life and died on the cross. It's his righteousness, not ours, that enables us to stand before a holy and just God. But what made that been difficult for me as a new believer is that the people I encountered were using the Bible. And so I didn't, I had to sort through, I had to figure out, okay, how does this square up with what Scripture actually says? Because they were giving the appearance of being sheep when in reality they were acting like wolves so I think we have to understand that when false teaching happens, oftentimes it's going to be clever. It's not going to be obvious. It's why Jesus says, beware of those who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And I'm guessing the same thing happened with Jezebel here. I doubt that she's just outwardly saying, listen, I know that you've heard this before, but I'm just telling you, do something different. Now I'm guessing she was much more clever. Now, given how modern arguments work, we could speculate about some of the things she might have argued. Maybe she told the church that they have a responsibility to provide for their families. It's a biblical principle, right, that you should provide for your families. And so maybe she was able to convince them, if you love your families, you need to be a part of these guilds. And so to go along with idolatry or immorality, it's really not that big a deal. You need to love your family and provide for them financially. Or maybe she was able to convince them That there's freedom in Christ. And she's saying, listen, it doesn't matter if you do this. You have freedom in Christ. Or maybe she's able to convince them that the Bible's rules about idolatry and immorality were old-fashioned. Or maybe she said something to the fact that they should love their neighbors. And so they should participate in these feasts so that they can fit in. Listen, I have no idea what tactic she used. But if we know anything about false teaching, it's likely she used some tactic. And it's likely the tactic had at least the ring of something that could be biblical. But the bigger point is that whether she used the tactic or not, the point is whatever she did worked. She was able to convince the church that idolatry and immorality were permissible. To quote verse 20, the church tolerated Jezebel. And that was their problem. Now it's interesting that this is Jesus' problem with the church at Thyatira, that they tolerated Jezebel. Because in our culture, one of the highest virtues you can have is to be a tolerant person. In fact, one of the worst things you can be called is intolerant. And yet, the problem Jesus has here with the church is that they were too tolerant. Now listen, certainly there's some, uh, there's some biblical values lying behind the idea of being respectful of people. And we're not saying that we should simply be intolerant in every case. But I do think, in light of what we read here, we have to be careful to not be more tolerant than Jesus. We have to tolerate the things that he tolerates and be intolerant towards the things that he is intolerant towards. And clearly, in this passage, he is not tolerant of what's happening with Jezebel. Now, it's also interesting to note here, and I think, I think this is important, the church at Thyatira is almost, in many ways, the exact opposite of the church at Ephesus. If you remember our first letter that we read in Revelation 2, the issue with the church at Ephesus is that they were able to discern true and false teaching. They were able to discern true and false teaching. They stood strong. They stood their ground. But they'd abandoned their love. In other words, they were great with theology. But they were really terrible at loving people. And they were really terrible at loving God. So they had the head, but not the heart. Thyatira is the opposite. They're seemingly doing a great job of loving people. They're doing a great job of serving others. But they're not able to discern between true and false teaching. They were strong on love but weak on theology. They had the heart, but not the head. So these two churches, Ephesus and now Thyatira, in many ways are the mere opposite. One knows all the right things. They have all the head knowledge, but they don't love people. The other one loves people, but they don't seem to have the right knowledge of what true doctrine looks like. So I guess the question I would ask is, which church would you rather be? The church that has the heart, and not the head, or the church that has the head and not the heart? The church that has the love, but not the doctrine, or the church that has the doctrine, but not the love? Which church would you rather be? It's actually a trick question, because the answer is neither. That The answer is neither. That much is obvious as we read Revelation. Jesus is not satisfied with either one of these churches. Now the reason I ask the question, which would you rather be, is because we almost always gravitate towards one of them. And most of the time, given what I just said about tolerance, we oftentimes gravitate towards the heart part. We would much rather be known as a a church that is loving than a church that is theologically sound, just in general, in American churches. But listen, Jesus is clear, and this is the value of doing a series where you look at various churches dealing with various issues. Both are vital. We need both the head and the heart. We need both the love and the theology. We can't say that we need one or the other. Listen, if we go back to the church at Ephesus, it's obvious that, yes, they had the head knowledge, but they lacked the love, and Jesus is not okay with that. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. He says, "...but I have this against you, that you abandon the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." So I think it's safe to say when you read that that Jesus was concerned about their lack of love right, he says if you do not repent of this I will come and remove the lampstand which would uh, which we explained when we were going through that passage meant effectively they would cease to be the church so listen the idea of being able to have all the head knowledge but not love people this is not acceptable for Jesus but just to be clear the opposite is not acceptable either look at verses 20 to 23 here again of Revelation 2 But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Listen, I think it's obvious that Jesus is not okay with having the love and yet not having right doctrine. I mean, it's obvious, right? He says that he will throw those onto the sickbed, that he will throw them into tribulation who are following her teaching. Those who bought in hook, line, and sinker, her children, as he refers to her, he will strike them dead. I think it's safe to say that Jesus is not okay with this, that he has concerns about a church that is extremely loving but does not have the head knowledge. Listen, Jesus is concerned with both. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that, that there is an error to make on either side, as is so often the case So often the case, there is a ditch on both sides of the road, right? It's so easy to think that if we just have the right head knowledge, we'll be okay, even if we don't love people. Or it's so easy to think if we just love people, it doesn't matter if we have right doctrine. But Jesus, I think as we start looking at this series as a whole, we realize we need both, right? We need the head knowledge, but we also need the love. And so we need to avoid the ditch on both sides of the road. And to illustrate that, let me just give you a little test case here. And I think it relates to what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about sexual morality and I feel like there's maybe a few loose ends that we need to tie up. And so let's go back to that. Last week we talked about the fact that the Christian sexual ethic is much different than the sexual ethic of the world. I think we need to go into great detail to make that argument because I think we know that's true. The way that the Bible looks at sexuality is much different than the way the culture does. Whether it's adultery or whether it's sex outside of marriage or homosexuality or pornography or whatever the case is, we look at the world, we look at that sexual ethic much different than the world. And the reason we talked about that last week is because the church at Pergamum was struggling in this area. The church at Thyatira is struggling in this way also. And so last week, we talked about the idea of courageously holding on to the biblical sexual ethic. So let's return to that issue and just say this, there is a ditch on both sides of the road. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. In other words, when it comes to this issue, we don't want to be so strong in theology that we forget what it means to love people. Listen, we must love people. We should be a church where those struggling with sin feel welcome, where unbelievers could walk in and feel like we care about them, and we are willing to hear their problems, and we are willing to come alongside them. We should be a place where it's okay if you're struggling with sexual sin or sins of the tongue or relational sin for it's okay for you to come here and feel like you would be welcome. We should be a place where those who are struggling feel like they can come. As has been said before, the church is not meant to be a museum. It's a hospital. We're not meant to be a place where we come and display our perfection. No, we come here because we recognize that we are weak and he is strong. That's why we're here. And so we should be a place where we are welcoming of those who are struggling with sin. As it relates to our topic last week, we should be a place where those struggling with fornication or homosexuality or pornography feel like they are welcomed and loved. And the reason why they should feel loved is because we of all people as Christians understand that Christ loved us even while we were still sinners. That's Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we should be a place, oh listen, this church should be a place where sinners feel welcome. So let me say this, whatever you're struggling with today, whatever it is, I want you to know I'm really glad that you're here today. I'm really glad you're here. You're not alone in your struggle against sin. Welcome to the hospital. Right? We're all broken. We're all broken. It's okay not to be okay. Now, we don't want to stay that way. By God's grace, we want to grow. We want to change over time. We want to fit what the Bible says about what a life should look like. But listen, this is a hospital. This is a place for broken people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not for those who think they're strong. It's for those who know they're weak. And so we know we're weak. And so for those who are strong with sin, even if you're here today, I just want you to know, this is the right place to be. This is the right place to be. And we should be a church that loves people we should be a church that welcomes those struggling with sin, and we should do so because Christ first loved us. Listen, we must do this. We don't want to be a church that is self-righteous and is filled with all of the right doctrine but doesn't love people. But on the other hand, and this is really important too, we cannot be a church that is all love and no doctrine. So we don't want to be a church like Ephesus, but we also don't want to be a church like Thyatira. And that's the danger on the other side of the road. It's entirely possible that we could be great at loving people or seemingly great at loving people and completely lacking in our doctrine. So again, returning to the same issue of sexual morality, the error we could make on the other side is that we could think as long as we love people, everything will be okay. We can begin to think that we should just love and not worry about standing up for what the Bible says about things. We can convince ourselves it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it to hold to biblical doctrine. We can convince ourselves we should just love people. And so in the name of love, we can decide, you know what, we're just not going to address biblical issues that are controversial. We're just not going to address biblical issues related to sexual morality. We're not going to bring those issues up because we know that people won't like what they say. And in fact, we might even be able to convince ourselves that it's okay for us to do some of those things because you know what, we just want to be loving people. And in the process, if we do that, we fall into the ditch on the other side of the road. And we completely lose the voice of Jesus. Listen, in Revelation 2, when Jesus talks about sexual morality, he doesn't say, hey, listen, if you can do this, great. If not, no problem. No, in Revelation 2, he says, if you do not repent of this, I'm going to come and make war. That's what he says to the church at Pergamum. Listen, this is a serious issue. So we want to be careful here. We don't want to fall into the ditch on either side of the road. 1 Corinthians is clear. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It would be a catastrophic mistake for us to turn our head the other way to sins that we're told in the word of God will prevent people from getting to heaven. And so we have to be careful on both sides. We have to be really careful, and I know that this is an issue that we have to really work to try to straddle the the line and make sure that we are walking in a way that is both loving and theologically sound. So on the one hand, if we just love people, but we lose our doctrine, that's tragic. But on the other hand, if we're sound theologically, but we're not loving, that is equally tragic. Listen, we must be a church that is both. We cannot be like Ephesians. We cannot be like the church at Thyatira. So please hear me. If we are a church that is theologically sound, we have all the right doctrine, but we don't love people, we have failed. But if we're a church that loves people, and yet we've lost biblical doctrine, and we've started to give in, and we've started to waffle, and we've started to stop saying what the Bible says, then we are in a serious trouble as well. We need both. We need the head. We need the heart. Now, how is this going to happen? How are we going to have both the head and the heart? I think the answer in part is found in verses 24 and 25. Verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. So I think this is the way, in part, that we'll be able to do this by holding fast to what we have, by holding fast to the good news of Jesus Christ. The way that you are able to protect your heart from growing cold and the love for God and the love for people is by reminding yourself of the great truth of the gospel. John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. So we remind ourselves of that truth we remind ourselves of the fact that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. We remind ourselves of the great love that God showed us through his son. As I'm convinced, as a church, we are oftentimes lacking a love for Jesus in the gospel. We've forgotten how great of good news this is. And one of the reasons I think we can say that is that we oftentimes struggle to tell other people. So we naturally talk about the things that we love. And the fact that we struggle to talk about Jesus maybe indicates that our love for him has started to grow cold. And so I'd say this. One of the ways that we can protect our heart from growing cold is by reminding ourselves over and over, this is what Jesus did. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did for us when he died on the cross and he rose three days later. But I would suggest that's also the way that we guard our hearts, by holding fast to the word of Christ. I think in order to hold fast to something it at least indicates that you have to have a knowledge of what you're holding fast to. And so I would say this, if we're going to ha- hold fast to the word of Christ, we should be experts in knowing what the word of Christ says. We should be experts in knowing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If someone were to say to you, hey, what is the gospel message? Or if someone were to say to you, how do I get right with God? Would you be able to explain that message in two minutes or less? Listen, we should be experts in the gospel. This is the thing that we should know. We should love the gospel because it's the message that saved us. If someone were to give you an hour and they were to say, listen, explain to me the storyline of the Bible and explain to me how all that ties into Jesus, would you be able to do that? Because I would argue we should be able to do that. We should be known as people who are experts in the gospel message. We should be people who are experts in knowing what this book says. We should know better than anyone the message because it saved us if we're Christians, right? And we should be experts. And so I wonder, are you an expert in this book? Do you know what this book says? Would you know enough if someone was misusing it? Would you be able to tell if someone was using a faulty argument from the Bible to try to make their point? Are you an expert in what this Bible says? Now listen, I I know that this will take time and I'm not saying you should go home tonight and you need to read from cover to cover. That would be impossible to do in one night, right? But over time, that might be something that you should want to do. That you should want to be an expert in reading the Bible. That you should want to be an expert in knowing what this message says so that you can hold fast to the word of life. So that we can hold fast to what Christ has taught us. Listen, the way to protect ourselves, both head and heart, is by making sure that we know what this word says. Now again, it's worth noting this will not be easy. For the church at Thyatira, for them to abandon the trade guilds would almost certainly mean economic ruin. This was not easy. It would mean that they were social outcasts. The church at Thyatira was not facing persecution like the other churches. They were not facing the threat of jail. They were not facing the threat of death in most cases. But they were facing economic persecution listen, this is something we need to be aware of because if persecution comes on the church in America, it likely will not first be in the form of jail time or death. It'll likely first be in the form of economic persecution. It'll be in the form of people losing their jobs because they proclaim what the Bible says. It'll be in the form of tax codes being rewritten so that churches and others who are Christians might not be able to benefit. It'll be churches or people, more accurately people who have businesses losing losing their business because of their following of Jesus Christ. And so we should be encouraged by Thyatira because they were at least some of them were willing to hold fast. We have to hold fast to the age-old message. If that comes, if that time comes where there's persecution, let us resolve now that we will not shrink back. And here's why, because of what verses 26 to 29 say. The one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think this idea of ruling the nations that he talks about here is simply a reminder that we will reign with Jesus Christ, that we will share in his inheritance. And when we realize that, the treasures of this world will begin to look small in comparison. Listen, the reason why we would be willing to suffer economically for the sake of Christ is because we believe that there is a greater treasure still to come. Martin Luther said it this way, We are not the heirs of some rich and mighty man, but heirs of God, the almighty creator of all things. If a person could fully appreciate what it means to be a son and heir of God, he would rate the might and wealth of nations small change in comparison with his heavenly inheritance. What is the world? to Him who has heaven. Listen, if we believe this, if we believe this, that we'll share in the inheritance, then suddenly things like money do not matter as much. Because we're looking forward to that day. And ultimately we look forward to that day because we will receive Him. In verse 28, Jesus says, those who hold fast will receive the morning star. In Revelation 22, Jesus says, I am the bright and morning star. The great reward of following Jesus is that we get to be with Him. He is the reward. If you are wondering, is it worth it to keep loving people? If you are wondering, is it worth it to hold fast to biblical truth? The answer is absolutely yes, it is worth it. And the reason why it is worth it is because we will be with Him forever. And because He is worth it. So let us do everything we can at New Hope to be a church that loves people. Regardless of what they believe, regardless of the things they do, let us be a church that loves people. That we love those who are opposed to our doctrine. We love those who are enemies. We love everyone, right? Because we understand the great love of Jesus Christ. Let us be a church that loves. But at the same time, let us be a church that is theologically sound. That we cling to the word of God because we believe with all of our hearts that this word is truth. And that in this word is life because it testifies about Jesus. So let us be a church that is full of love, but let us also be a church that is theologically sound. And let us do both, because we love the Savior. He's our motivation. Let's pray.